Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast that's all about hitting rewind on the bands, scenes and other cool stuff we love. I'm Rick Martin and this is my co-host Sarah Jane Kemp. So what's new this week, Sarah? So if you're a regular listener of the show, we you'll know that we love a guest on Demo Tapes and we don't really ever have an episode without one. But this week we've decided to go a bit of a step further and bring one of those guests onto the show when we're talking actually as a co-host. So without further ado, hi, Laura Jean Marsh. Hey guys, thanks for having me back. So yeah, regular listeners may remember, yeah, you were on a show uh, a couple of months back uh, when you came on to talk about your film, Giddy Stratospheres, kind of a love letter to the uh, naughty guitar scene. And yeah, we're so excited about that film and also kind of want to drill into your film knowledge for, for kind of the theme of this episode. That we thought we thought it'd be great to get you back on. So yeah, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Now you'll know that Sarah and I like a news hook for these episodes, whether it's an anniversary of an album or a kind of a band that we love coming back for a tour. But I guess for this episode, we don't really have one in terms of that theme being film soundtracks and the film soundtracks we love and how film soundtracks are put together. Other than the fact, you know, we're in lockdown. We've all been watching loads of films. We know that you as our listeners will be watching lots of films. So we thought kind of what better thing to do than bring Laura back to kind of discuss all things uh, film soundtracks. Yeah, and it's not just about the soundtracks, is it, Rick? It's, it's you know, I think we're both really looking forward to, to digging into some of the soundtracks that we actually love. But it, I guess this episode's all about having the most of our guest and an industry expert, you know, someone who's worked in this industry and we haven't. Um, and it's up to us to kind of find out a bit more about exactly how film soundtracks are put together, you know, what makes a good soundtrack. And we just want to get a few bits of insider tips and tricks uh, for you guys. So are you up for that, Laura? Absolutely. I'll do my best. <laughs> and also I should say at this point, I'm going to be able to chip in because I got an A at A-level in film studies 17 years ago. And that stuff never leaves you, right? So whether it's like diegetic sound, non-diegetic sound, the mise-en-scene, I mean, they're probably the only three things I remember. But anyway, you know, um, that I've still got that on hand. So I'll try and give you a bit of a run for your money, Laura. All right, cool. I have no idea what those three words meant. So I think you're winning already. <laughs> but I think we, before we get into all that, Laura, we should probably get a bit of an update on uh, Giddy Stratospheres. You know, the last time we spoke, you just wrapped up the filming uh, and you were going into the post-production. So where are you up to? Well, yeah, we're, we're knee deep in the edit at the moment. And um you know, it's really fun. You know, it's exciting. We're basically piecing together everything we shot uh, and putting music to our scenes. Um, we've got some really exciting tunes in there. Um, and yeah, it's, it's actually it's a really fun process um, because, you know, we, we know what we shot. We were there. I was there. But actually seeing it, you know, coming to coming together is is such a treat um and it's a bit weird because we're not in the same room like ordinarily you'd be in a room with your editor um mm. so we're mm. kind of doing everything online and loads of long voice notes and me being difficult um but we're all really excited and it's looking really sick um so yeah we're, we're knee deep in that and we're set to be sort of completely in the can and edited and picture locked by the end of February if we're if we're lucky so yeah it's, it's going well wow so it's fast approaching so how, I guess to so I can understand how that kind of better works sort of is it that you get rushes of stuff like maybe 10 minutes of the film you give feedback on the edit you send that back or do you get kind of longer cuts and then you're chipping away at the stuff to take out 
Um, so I was really um, specific about what I wanted while we were shooting. Uh, and we really did stick to the script. So you have a script you, you, you were initially write, and then you have a script which is called the shooting script. So there wasn't really any surprises. Um, so my <clears throat> DOP, Jack, um, who is also editing the film, um, it's not really been like he's been sending me anything over that I wasn't expecting. You know, I was there, I saw it all happening. You know, he's, the only difference is a certain like beeps. So I might, you know, with the comedy elements, I might be like, oh, you need to kind of get this expression before that line or, mm. uh, you know, with the music, for example, because I'm such a um, obsessive <laughs> and it's about music, you know, 50% of it is very much about music. I'm really precise about that stuff. So I might be picky about certain things, but me and, you know, the team are very much on the same page and we have been from the beginning. So uh, he'll send over a scene, uh, a rough cut of a scene um, with my notes already in place. Mm. And then I'll be like, can we change this? Can we change that? Can we try try this? Um, and we, we have a lot of improvisation as well with our actors. We tried loads of really cool improv, which makes those kind of certain elements like of after party footage and club stuff that we, I really wanted it to feel real. You know, I wanted our indie mm. kids to feel real and our bands to feel real. So um putting together the improv has been a bit more complicated because we just basically you know I would give our actors like a little bit of a seed and then they mm. would um you know go for it and just improv their tips off and sometimes it's a bit bananas <laughs> so mm. making it all work and putting it all together that's been a little bit more complicated but um but yeah it's, it's going well it's 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 really fun it's funny you say that I'm pretty sure 24-hour party people which I know is uh one of your favourites and one of my favourites as well that I talked about on that, yeah. that that last show. That I'm pretty sure that one of the end scenes of that where they're kind of tearing down the hacienda, That's they true. did just get a load of real clubbers in to make yeah. it look real, you know? Yeah, and a lot of my favourite films, uh, you know, like, well, a lot of my favourite directors like Mike Lee and Shane Meadows, they, they do a lot of that improv stuff. So I hadn't really done it before myself as, as a as a filmmaker, but I threw myself in and kind of pretended I knew what I was doing. And it, it, I think it worked. So it definitely brings that element of truth to it. I don't think you can get away with improvising an entire film. <laughs> uh, but there are certain moments that are fully improvised um, and it, it, it definitely adds a, uh, a cool element for sure when you're learning from the greats. And did I read on uh, Twitter that you've, is it a distribution deal you've set up? I know there's some, on something on the business side has made a bit of progress since we last spoke. That's right. So, um, so you need a distributor who basically sells your film. That's the thing you need to get your film out there. Um, and amazingly, before we even started filming, uh, me and my producer Beth were sitting in a cafe looking at distribution companies and the top of our list was this distributor called uh, Bulldog and they're a British film distributor and they've got tons of awesome indie movies uh, and loads of films that I really respect and love and they're just cool dudes and they loved what you know I basically just sent them my script and you know a, a rough industry cut of the trailer and and they they signed us up so it's a good sign. That's really exciting. So we'll have had some listeners who were listening to you last time talking about this. Um, how can they how can they track the progress? 
So really good place to keep up with our progress is Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and on Instagram, it's simply at Giddy Stratospheres Film. And on Twitter, it is Film Giddy. I forgot it for a minute there, but it is. It's, it's at Film Giddy. Um, and we have a website as well, which is www.giddystratospheresfilm.com. <laughs> so those three. I mean, if in doubt, just keep an eye on our social media because we'll definitely be, uh, be be retweeting stuff out and keeping an yeah. eye on progress. Because we we can't wait to see the film, and uh, we you know we hope guests of honour at the uh, the premiere or something like uh, that. Right? Absolutely, I was talking to Sarah about this with my mate. You were indeed. I was very. I got very excited about this. So did I, and then I deleted it because <laughs> people started harassing me. <laughs> I thought on your your Instagram that you guys were invited to be <laughs> the premiere, and I got messages from people going, "How do we get to the premiere?" Did you? <laughs> yeah, oh, like, oh no. Yeah. Um, but yeah, of course, you guys are totally like giddy family now. So yeah, you can come. I don't know when it's going to be because there's like an apocalypse and shit. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> after the apocalypse and uh <laughs> obviously your film's kind of a based around music and we're expecting we'll have some quite big live music elements um mm. but i imagine also there'll be a use of non-diegetic sound which you said uh you didn't know what it was earlier i got an a at film studies so non-diegetic sound is stuff that isn't naturally happening in a yeah. scene i.e the soundtrack so i guess i'm interested and this is where we kind of segue into drilling into your uh your film knowledge and how films are put together like where do you start to find the inspiration for that music that maybe isn't happening in a scene, but you're using to kind of set the mood? Um, well, in my case, uh, for Giddy Stratospheres, I already had in mind tracks that I wanted for certain moments. Um, even before we started filming, you know, when I started uh, storyboarding. So, I mean, I, I spoke to you, Rick, before about my process of writing Giddy Stratospheres and, and as I was writing it, I was like, oh shit, we need that track there. We need this track there. And like, you know, that's gonna really work there and that'll be so sad there. And, you know, and I already had the moments in my mind of how, how they were gonna work together. Um, I don't think that's always the case. Um, I can't, I can only speak for myself, but being such a music geek and the film being so part of my heart um, and my past, it was almost like, um, there was no question of certain tracks that I needed for certain moments. So I've been really ruthless <laughs> making sure that I get those songs. Um, so I think it's really important to trust your gut, especially if the film is, is very much heavily influenced by music or it's about a certain scene like mine is. If something feels like you need it in a moment and make it happen. Um, also, if you're selling your idea to a musician, and you really believe in it, then they should, as artists, want to be a part of it. I think mm. if 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 you if you're gonna do their song justice, and I've been quite lucky that all the all the bands and artists that I've approached have been like mega excited about the film, which has really helped with my confidence because obviously it's quite nerve wracking when you're building shit, making mm. art. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> you're putting your heart out there. Um, but so far, so good. You know, every, everyone's been supportive, so it's been quite easy to execute my vision and you said there about kind of your process for choosing the songs but i guess just more generally is there a process is it different in certain films when the music is chosen you know can it be something that comes very late in post-production or in other films is it essential when even filming a scene to kind of know what's going to be the bed of track underneath like how does that work well some of it was an accident from for us um so even though i had certain 
tracks in mind for certain moments in the script that I stuck to. There was a couple of moments on set where we were having club scenes and I was like, oh, it's really annoying. I really want to tell you what they are. Um, Cause you guys hmm. would be like, that's so cool. But like, you know, proper indie disco bangers, you know, where I was just like, I needed to get everyone really excited to film and jump about to this band that were about to go on stage in this scene. And so I put a track on. <laughs> so there was a certain song that I, I played and a lot of the actors, you know, they're all kids. They've never heard that song, but they all went so mental. And it was such an immediate, because it's such a big tune, you know? Mm. Um, and I was like, oh, I hadn't actually, I didn't have that as part of the, the track listing. They had, and, and I was like, well, we're going to have to have that in now, aren't we? Because mm. the energy was so bang on. Um, so some things are a happy accident. So you've got our minds swimming now with what this could have been, you know, something danceable, something noughties, maybe something with a cowbell in it. But yeah, we'll, we'll let you keep that a secret for uh, for, for listeners. It's um, not S Club 7. <laughs> 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 Nothing wrong with S Club 7 Sorry, when, you're 12, when you're 12. <laughs> And I guess on a film, you know, who always tends, you know, is it different who chooses the songs? You know, and the reason I bring this up is um, I have an interesting fact on this, that in TV programmes, I know that Donny Tourette from uh, Towers of London worked at Sky, and that we've mentioned this on a previous show, as like their music librarist or you know, they work in the music library. And I, I, I'm one of those people, I don't know, I'm always fascinated when I hear TV or film and there's a song in the background. You think, how have you, how have you mm. got to that? Is it that you search through a... A lyric archive and then, I mean obviously in, in the case of your film you're setting it very much in a in a period and it probably a lot of like you said you were mentioning there about playing a track to get people excited it, it almost writes itself but I imagine with other films or other projects you've worked on it's mm. less obvious and there, there's a lot of research that goes into it so who actually who actually does that work and so sort of how do they do it well I, I've learned recently that usually on a on productions where the director writer like myself has a lot to do they they might not be in charge of of pitching ideas to myself if you get me so there's mm. like a there's music music editors and, and music supervisors and on a big production or for tv like um you know a tv show or whatever they'll pitch ideas for music and they'll find it through library or or whatever um but in in my case I, I, obviously this was very much important that i i I used the songs that I wanted, but it, but people do use music like like supervisors. There is a job. I've I've recently got someone involved in the film, which is going to help me sort of like secure the sync. But there are track listings that I already had, so that's the difference. But for big films, there'll be somebody in charge of pitching ideas to a filmmaker. And I don't know about you, Sarah, but I think a good soundtrack can kind of make or break a movie, or it can even make an average film look pretty good I don't know how you feel about that Sarah and maybe Laura if you share that as well uh I think it depends what kind of film it is doesn't it I think there's definitely some films where I don't even that doesn't even enter my mind the soundtrack because it, it's not the sort of film where it needs it but there are some films that if you know the films that we're going to go on to talk about in a bit that the soundtrack almost comes first to me now that other than the film one and they don't for, for sure one one or at least two of mine do Mm. Um, so I just think it really depends. I know for a fact that, like, I don't know about you guys, but when you when I was a teenager, um, and there was a lot of those kind of cool, uh, well, I thought they were cool at the time. It's like proper teeny bopper movies, like Clueless, 
and Kevin Smith films and Empire Records and The Craft and High Fidelity. I mean, it's not really a teeny bopper, but it was definitely something I was obsessed with when I was a teenager. Like you think of the soundtrack first. And I used to listen to the sort of soundtracks obsessively. Um, and I think that was when I first started get, getting obsessed with, with music for film, because you think you hear one of those songs and you immediately remember the scene. Well, Clueless, um, I'm going to be a supermodel. That song yeah. has never left me. That's a yeah. great, that, that was a great film. And yeah, you're right. It's, um, but I think it's like, it, it's kind of of the time, isn't it? So when you think about films like Clueless and the kind of songs that were attached to that film mm. it, and the fashion and everything, it was just so of the time. Yeah, um, And I think that's what makes, that's what makes it good. Mm, I agree. I guess on the flip side, can either of you think of an example of where a soundtrack has totally ruined a film? Um, I think I feel mean. I don't think I can answer that question because I'll, I'll just because I'm stitching myself up if my film is shit, everyone will slag me off. I've definitely watched a film and thought, whoa, that's going to date. You know, like when you hear some sort of like some composers decided to write a techno tune for a nightclub or something and you're like, uh-uh, that's mm. not going to that's not going to age well, mate. Not like even if you fine wine. You say stuff like uh, American Pie, and it's got all kind of the the pop punk, like the the American pop punk on that. And you're right, it totally dates something. And you watch yeah. that, and sometimes films can even seem older than they are based on the uh, on the soundtrack. Like In Between Us, I mean, that's not a film. That's I suppose it was a film actually, and then it was, it was a TV series before that. But that to me sounds like a period drama now, based on the fact mm. all the all the tracks in the background are like you know Arctic Monkeys, fluorescent adolescent. How do you even say that? Fluorescent, adolescent, adolescent. adolescent. Uh, you know, the wombat, stuff like that. And I think, you know, you're right. Maybe it's not more about a bad soundtrack, but certain soundtracks definitely date a film and put it in a time and place, don't they? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I wonder whether it's, because, you know, it's a big difference between filmmakers that maybe want to make money and filmmakers that want to make something that is going to last. Mm. But then again, kind of the, uh, on the flip side to that, it's about nostalgia comes into play here, doesn't it? Because I think if you hear, you know, if you did like Blink-182 and Sum 41 and what all, of, all of those kind of American um, college bands, I guess, what they were called, you did like them. And I'm sure I liked a couple of songs at the time. If I Green hear Day that now, Green, yeah, mm. it will Green take you back and it might make you feel a bit nostalgic for how you used to feel about watching that film at the time. So mm. then there's a flip, flip side argument to that. And you mentioned there as well, Laura, that, you know, that there's a business side to this and soundtracks in and of themselves are quite big business for films. You know, I was, I was doing a bit of research for this and looking like Greece, the Greece soundtrack has sold 38 million copies mm. worldwide. And it makes you think, well, actually, is it more profitable to do a film soundtrack than it is a film? Because, mm. you know, an, an album of songs, particularly if they're not all original, won't take you that much to put together. A film takes kind of a lot more work. So I guess I'm interested in your thoughts on that in terms of there's a whole business around the business of soundtracks isn't there yeah i think well it's definitely profitable for the artists in question um not not necessarily for me <laughs> but yeah for the artists in question for sure and i think that it would be so cool if a lot of the bands that i'm featuring in the film ended up sort of making some dosh off the back of the film for sure there was a soundtrack involved i'm hoping that the film does really well and that's something that that will happen <laughs> Mm. Um, but yeah, certainly, like Greece has absolutely made megabucks, hasn't it? And um, there's the other kind of again the flip side where you've got films like Mamma Mia, who've taken basically ABBA's back catalogue and made it awful. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but then ABBA make shit tons of money off that. Yeah, they might they might they might not care. 
well, I mean, ABBA are doing all right, aren't they? But it'd be, it's nice. I like I like stories where where musicians that haven't made tons of money make money at a later date, you know, f- through something else. I think it's cool. I think that's a good point. Yeah, sometimes films can almost unearth um, artists who maybe been a bit overlooked or yeah. a back catalogue that's been kind of gathering dust and then gets mm-hmm. kind of. I don't know, brought to the surface again. And I think some of the some of the films that are going to be on our list a little bit later on are probably mm. good examples of that. So that's probably quite a nice segue. So we've pr- probably um, given the hint there that Mamma Mia is not going to be on our list. Grease, to be fair, was nearly on my list because I think there's some credible stuff on that soundtrack alongside some awful stuff. I don't know, mm. I'm quite conflicted about Greece. It sounds like the whole world's quite conflicted about Greece at the moment. Did you see all the controversy at Christmas when... It was put out on Boxing Day and, you know, the Daily Mail was writing about woke snowflakes have said that Greece should be cancelled because against modern standards, it's... Um... Oh, is that because Sandy stopped being a pussy and started smoking to impress boys? <laughs> well, there's that, yeah. Uh, yeah. I kind of hold it in so far, She looked so cool, though, when she did have a makeover. But I'm sort of like, yeah, well, you know, I preferred her outfit for sure. Can't cancel everything like that, surely. <laughs> it's like in Clueless when uh, Ty gets a makeover to impress the boys. Yes. Uh, same thing. It's been done multiple times. Anyway, I think we should move on to the, talk about the soundtracks we love. Yeah, so I've, I have set down some kind of ground rules for this. So it has to be our 10 favourite uh, film soundtracks between us. Uh, it, it's not films about music necessarily, like the last episode we did was films about music. Um, and it's as much about kind of what we love about the film and also what we kind of love about the music. And we're going to kind of go through them one by one. But we're not trying to decide which is the best. I should probably make that clear at this point. This is not choosing the best of the ten. I'm sure we'll argue it out kind of as uh, as we go through. Although, to be fair, the first one on the list, we've we've kind of included one that um, we all agree on, right? Yes. Which is, drumroll, spotting. And, and, and I guess this is a good one to kick off with simply because this is sort of where the idea for this episode uh, came from i'm currently writing something else i'm writing a series and i was researching stuff and i needed to watch train spotting for a specific reason and i hadn't watched it for 10 years because i have a really embarrassing fear of needles <laughs> <laughs> so do i <laughs> really really like i'm with you on I that mean, first world problems like but i really can't handle them um and i remember i, I still hadn't got o- gotten over the last time i'd watched it even though i love it it's really quite difficult if you've got that idea i've never it. been able to watch it for that reason you know really no, nope never been able to watch it oh needle buddies but i've heard the soundtrack <laughs> <laughs> um but i watched it I, I braved it and watched it and i have to say like I, I think the reason I tweeted, I was just having one of those like total geeky teenager moments where I was like, I need everyone to know how much I fucking love this film right now, this second that I'm going to tweet it. No one's going to care, except for Rick. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you were just like, yeah. And then you said, that, like, I said that that, that scene um, where Renton spots um, Lee Ma- McDonald's Kelly character. McDonald's. I don't, I don't think yeah. she even has a name in it. She's just a bird, isn't she? That's why I can't remember it. But yeah, he, he Watch spot- it, that, that one will get cancelled as well now if we're not careful. <laughs> But he, she doesn't have a name, actually. I'm pretty sure. Maybe I'm wrong. But he, he spots her across the bar, and it's one of the most beautiful scenes. It's really gorgeous, and I'll, I'll mention it when we get to the track bit in that scene. But um, I, I posted a picture of that, and you were like, and it has the best soundtrack ever, and, you know, I think that's where this started. Yeah, so for listeners, we should probably, I mean, we think most people probably know what train spotting is, but if you're a younger listener or, uh, like Sarah, you... Um, 
you didn't want to watch it through a fear of needles. This is uh, Danny Boyle's adaptation of Irvin Welsh's book from 1996. Stars Ewan McGregor, basically made Ewan McGregor's career, as far as I can understand. Robert Carlyle, Kelly MacDonald, as you mentioned. And the kind of soundtrack is a mix of what I would call heroin classics. So some Iggy Pop stuff, some Lou Reed stuff, which we can go into in a minute. And then kind of Britpop of the time. And it's set in Edinburgh and basically follows these this gang of ne'er-do-wells um, who are all addicted to drugs I think it's probably fair probably the quickest way of describing it just certainly, a bit certainly Renton is and he kind of he moves to London to get away from all that but never seems to quite kind of escape his demons so what is it you love about the film that scene you were talking about there in the club with with Kelly MacDonald can you remind us what the track is that's playing yeah it's a cover actually it's a cover of Blondie's Atomic um, mm. And there's quite a lot of Britpop in, in the uh, soundtrack, but it's Sleeper, Sleeper do a cover of Atomic by Blondie. And I love this cover because it, they're not changing it too much. <laughs> mm. You know, it's got exactly the same vibe. It's got exactly the same bass line. All the magic that that, that Blondie track has, you know, the, the reason why it's so brilliant. But it's just got that kind of slightly Britpop vocal, which makes it really sexy. And that moment where Renton has, I think it's a fag hanging out of his mouth and he just looks up and the lighting is like glowing like blues and reds and he just looks up and he sees Kelly McDonald looking like an absolute babe, uh, underage babe. But she doesn't look at it in that moment. And he doesn't sure. know, yeah, he doesn't know. But it's just one of those moments that everyone's had. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you're lucky, and I think it's, you know, when you're in a disco, indie disco or whatever, or a club and you just spot someone and you're like, ah! Um, and I, you know, it really inspired me actually just watching it the other day because I was like, yeah, I need to capture that kind of vibe at some point. Um, and it's the song, song's super sexy. So it's, it's when, you know, when music really kind of supports a scene and it hits you like that, you're like, that's when you mm. realise how mm. important music is in the film. And it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, that's probably the song that's most closely associated with the film is Lust for Life by... Iggy Pop, and you know, I went for a run uh, today and was listening to the, some of the soundtracks we we're going to talk about, and I was like, mm. "This feels a bit weird that I'm running to Iggy Pop's Lust for Life because now, am I running to go and buy some smack? I've got to try and work, <laughs> you know, because I'm so now in the moment of I can't hear that song and not think I'm running through Edinburgh to probably go and buy some smack. So, don't know. Do, You're looking quite good for someone who's high on smack. Oh, I know. Yeah, I, I could probably do with some smack at the moment based on my uh, <laughs> lockdown weight gain. Why not? <laughs> but um so what, what what do you think of that <laughs> kind of that scene um well i think it's what's so great about lust for life opening the film is it throws you straight into the, like the kinetic energy of the film uh and it gives you all the feels of escapism and ecstasy and you know it's a fuck it's such a fucking great track uh anyway uh regardless and i think anybody it's such a clever tune to choose for that moment because Anybody watching the film in the cinema back in the day, I mean, they're not going to walk out, are they, hearing that and seeing those boys legging it down the street. Hmm. It's such, a, it's, it's just pure magic and it's so exciting. Um, yeah, it's just, it completely sets you up for, for what, what's to come. Like, it's hmm. just a mega exciting intro. And I suppose the what's to come, as we said, is kind of a slow descent into depravity. And, uh, yeah. you know, I think Lou Reed's Perfect Day, uh, which was, my understanding was that was written about heroin, although he never really kind of confirmed that. You know, that's used as a bit of a, a motif later in, in the film. And I tell you what's surprising about that song for me is 
I think even when I wrote for Enemy and sort of growing up in sort of through music, I assume Lou Reed had sold more records and was a bigger deal than I think I realised more recently when I watched one of those classic album uh, documentaries about Transform. I'm going off a bit of a tangent here, but I'll bring it back. And I was like, you know, that, that to me is one of the greatest albums ever. And I just assumed, mm -hmm. you know, when you look on Wikipedia and you think, I'll just see how many that sold. And you think it's going to say it sold 300 million copies. And in reality, you know, Lou Reed didn't didn't sell anywhere near as many records as, as sort of you would assume he did. And this this is probably a good example of what you were saying about a film maybe rise, raising awareness of an artist or a song. Because mm. I think, and I, I reckon he had a little bit of a, a bump from this, for want of a better word, yeah, I think from this so. being included, you know. And, I, and it's the same for um, Born Slippy as well. It really raised them into the mainstream. Um, Underworld weren't actually; they were just a dance thing. And then mm, when that mm. when when Transporting came out, they got completely um, sort of they they became super. Well, I won't want to say commercial, <laughs> but they definitely got pushed into the mainstream and became like mega, mega, mega successful. Um, so yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, so I guess we can move on to uh, number two on the list, and this is one from you, Sarah. It is. It is the Kill Bill Volume One original soundtrack. Um, and it's the soundtrack to the first volume, in the title, um, of the two-part Quentin Tarantino film, Kill Bill. Uh, and it was released um, in 2003, and it reached number 45 on the Billboard 200 album chart, which I thought was not that high for what it should have done. Um, and the thing that, I, that interests me mostly about it um, is that it was produced by uh, produced and orchestrated by RZA from the Wu-Tang Club. Um, and the thing I love about it is that it's got it's got zero hip hop on it at all. So, um, you know, I love Tarantino movies. It's, it's not actually my favourite Tarantino film, um, but I've talked about you know Ennio Morricone before on the on one of the other episodes with Tom Clark um, of the en from the Enemy, and because you know I think he had some some uh, influences uh, from from him in one of a few of his songs in his newest album. Um, but I, I thought this one was a bit, a bit, a bit of a left-field one, just because of the, the using a hip-hop producer. Um, and I, he said actually that he didn't want to put any hip-hop beats on there. I think he'd created one that was kind of very subtle, got a hip-hop beat on there. But he, he didn't want to take any risks as it wasn't his film. So um, that was quite interesting that that didn't happen. Um, I, I mean, where do I start? <laughs> Um, it starts out with with kind of uh, a Nancy Sinatra song, Bang Bang, um, when she says, when I don't want to ruin the film, it's not going to ruin the film because it's the first line, but she kind of goes, it's your baby, the gun fires and the song plays. And it's just such a great, impactful start to a, to a film. Mm. And also that film, that song, um, the audio bullies did a version of it as well. And mm. I loved that. that I that loved was, that cover. It was so mm. good. It's um, so cool. Yeah, so whenever, whenever I hear either of the versions, I think if I hear the audio bullies when I think of Kill Bill and Nancy Sinatra, if I hear Nancy Sinatra, I think of audio bullies. So it's a win-win in my opinion mm. um i also just love the fact that it's um the whole film is kind of set in japan and i went to tokyo a couple of years ago and um i love the fact that it's got japanese rockers in it the five six seven eights um, and they actually perform in it um well, it launched a career in fact i think didn't it that was what kind of put them on the map as, as a band and they had a 
a bit of a novelty career for want of for want of a better. Yeah. I think they were seen as a bit of a novelty at the time. I think Enemy covered them for two weeks. You know when that is it? Woo hoo! Yeah, 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 That's yeah. The tune yeah. in it. Yeah, so they start off playing a different song. And I don't think that I don't think the other song that they started playing in the film actually made it to the soundtrack, but the Woohoo song did. Um, but it's you know it's very catchy and it's great. And there's you know the dancing in the film is is just fantastic. It sort of reminded me of being um, at some of the, the the gigs I used to go to when there's kind of like, like the rockabillies and things like kind of dancing around the dance floor and shuffling and all that kind of stuff. So it was really great to see. But um, another thing I loved about this film is that they the, the different kind of film styles um, and, and the anime was such a big part of it and the kind of juxtaposition between kind of the anime and then the western music so kind of the big epic strings when someone's getting violently stabbed and it just doesn't seem to fit but also fits perfectly at the same time mm. um so yeah that, that's my I, was, I wouldn't say it's my number one but it's definitely it's definitely kind of up there for me is tarantino an influence for you uh laura um, I mean, I'd, I'd be lying if I said no, um, because, you know, I, I love Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction is a singular genius creation um, and a good example as well of an amazing soundtrack that, you know, I mean, it's just a dream, that soundtrack. Um, I don't love everything he's done. Um, sometimes I think they could be a bit, uh, I don't know, I, I, I haven't loved every one of his films, but I... I absolutely love Reservoir Dogs and I absolutely, yeah, Pulp Fiction's just amazing. I think I watch it a few times a year just because it's a real treat um, mm. and definitely a good example of, of music being such a 50-50 because what would those films be without hearing, um, you know, uh, whatever whatever tune you associate with a certain scene, you know, they're just all sick. Uh, and there's, there's a quote actually that I forgot to read out here that... Um, that when he's kind of going through and, and choosing songs, he's describing it and he says, one of the things I do when I'm starting a movie, when I'm writing a movie or when I have an idea for a film is I go through my record collection and just start playing songs, trying to find the personality of the movie and find the spirit of the movie. Mm. And then boom, eventually I'll hit one, two or three songs or one thing in particular and go, mm. great, that'll be the great opening credit song. Mm. So that's you know we talked a bit about how you do it earlier uh, Laura and, and I guess mm. that was I'm quite glad that I found that quote um yeah so yeah Rick, what do you what do you think to that is it is Tarantino a, a, a kind of on your hit list as well or <laughs> I think my memories of Tarantino are when I did my film studies A level which I may have mentioned a couple of times here did you uh, study film I studied film studies at A-level, oh. yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned that. And um, this was only for two years in a college in Stockport, right? This was not in Hollywood. And um, we were all asked in like, the first lesson, like, what's your favourite film? And all the cool ones went Tarantino. And I think I said either Spider-Man or Jurassic Park, because at the time, as a 16-year-old, that was what I was genuinely into. I hadn't got into, you know, auteur filmmakers and stuff like that. So he's always really been tarred with that brush for me as the filmmaker that all the cool kids in my college were a fan of but yeah I mean you can't help but I guess be impressed by a lot of the stuff he does I'm probably more of a fan of Pulp Fiction mm. than I am the Kill Bill stuff there's been accusations I guess at times that he's a little bit maybe misogynistic in certain ways in some of his films and some of that as I've questioned some of that I guess watching it with more with kind of modern eyes mm. it's a tricky one that it's a big old conversation. Um, yeah, I'm that, not sure that's one for demo tapes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could go into it, but I don't know if we want to do that. Um, but I think that, 
Pulp Fiction, Pulp Fiction is a is a, is perfect. And also, like you know, there's some badass ladies in Pulp Fiction. They're not all victims. So yeah, the, I think also in that film that the women are the kind of focus of the film, and they're badass. So mm. when Lucy Liu's walking down the corridor and she's got her a male harem in tow let's mm. let's face it and that battle without honor or humanity um that track that you instantly recognize because it's been kind of everywhere in loads of different films on the radio by japanese rock musician um tomoyasu hotai if i can say that properly but yeah it, it, i think that film does celebrate women massively you know mm. they're badass mm. I haven't watched Kill Bill for ages. I think I'm definitely going to watch it. I watched it tonight before we we recorded this episode again because I hadn't seen it for for quite a few years, actually. And Mm. uh, it was even better this time around. Mm. Absolutely. So, yeah, go and watch it. I remember there was some seriously frisky sword play. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess speaking of women and being victims and blades, I think. I'm trying to segue all the films here. You're number three on the list. That's probably a quite a tenuous link, but I think just about works. What's what's number three on the list and your next choice, Laura? So is that, yeah, number three on the list is The Shining, and that's my number one film of all time, believe it or not. Is this where I start talking about it? Yes, okay. that, that, that was the segue. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to keep this nonsense in. I do not mind. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, so The Shining is easily my favourite film of all time. Um, And it's the film I watch when I want to feel comforted and cheered up and cozy. Which possibly possibly says a lot about the kind of weirdo I am. Um, And if somebody mentions The Shining, I sort of light up like a Christmas tree. Um, Because I watched that film when I was, I think I was about nine. I think I was way too young. And I found the videotape and I put it on. I remember being absolutely horrified by it, but so blown away like by what an assault on the senses it was and mm. the music you know is, is is what one of the things that makes it but a little bit of background info on the shining and uh for anyone that doesn't know that has never heard of the shining uh it was made in 1980 by the great mr stanley kubrick uh the screenplay was written by himself and a lady called diane johnson and is, of course, based on the brilliant 1977 novel of the same name by Mr. Stephen King, who is a singular genius and I'm also obsessed with. Um, I actually really wanted to make a, a film. Um, I, I really wanted to do Pet Cemetery. I don't know if you guys have read it. Um, uh, that, yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, I've not, not read it. No. It's already been made a couple of times, but I, I just think it's, it's such a brilliant, weird story that I really want to do. I really want to do it at some point. Um, but yeah, another another year. Um, it stars Jack Nicholson as Jack, Shelley Duvall as Wendy, Danny Lloyd as their kid Danny, and Scatman Crothers as the hotel cook. Um, and there's loads of other like creepy, weird characters that I love, but I won't bang on about them because this is about music. Um, but the central character is Jack Torrance. Uh, he's an aspiring writer and recovering alcoholic. And he accepts a position as the caretaker of the historic and isolated Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies, uh, which may or may not be built on a Native American burial ground. Hmm. (laughs) Um, Jack and Wendy's son, Danny, is gifted with The Shining, which is basically code for being able to see lots, lots of crazy, horrific shit. Um, and meanwhile, our Jack is slowly losing his tiny mind, uh, much like the caretaker before him. 
who uh, casually murdered his wife and daughters uh, on site. So what could go wrong? Um, the reason the reason I chose The Shining for this uh, is not only because I love the film, but because the, the soundtrack itself and the music is absolutely terrifying in its own right. Um, I challenge anyone to listen to the main title of The Shining without casually checking under their bed or looking down the, ho the hallway to see if there's like undead children <laughs> lingering. Um, and interestingly, Kubrick actually commissioned somebody to write an original score, uh, but he sort of low-key hated it <laughs> and hired, uh, he just didn't like it. I mean, I think Kubrick did kind of shit a lot where he'd just go, now. Nah, you know, after someone had done lots and lots of work on something, you just go, actually, no, like, I don't like it. Um, so he hired this guy uh, called Gordon Stainforth to curate the soundtrack. And he is a fucking genius, basically, this dude. Uh, the main title um, and three of the other tracks uh, were actually written by some badass lady composers uh, called Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind. And we hear the main title of The Shining uh right at the beginning for the first time when Jack and Wendy's car winds down the Colorado Rockies and we're first introduced to Jack, his family and Jack's short temper. I don't know if you, are you guys familiar with the film or? Oh yeah, no, I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. I, I've only seen it once because it was too scary to watch again as far as I was concerned. Oh, I watched it quite recently actually. Uh, yeah. I, I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. Uh, like you, not, not that young though, but only really, so I'd say pretty much the first time I've seen it recently because I didn't know what was going on when I was younger. Yeah, <laughs> and um, it's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's I think it's it's brilliant. I think some people think that that um, that Jack Nicholson's performance is a little bit over the top, but personally, I, I mean, I he can do no wrong in my eyes, and uh, you know, I think anyone that brave, um, you know, and actually, I'll get onto this later when we're talking about one of my other films about big performances and and people being brave enough to to execute them. But um, the, the reason I love the music in The Shining is it's like the, it, it's basically like a mishmash of strings and brass that um, the, the original music that was written by Wendy and Rachel. And if you if you have a listen on Spotify or whatever, you can hear it sounds like these like it sounds like whales crying in pain. Hmm. And it, it doesn't sound like, like it doesn't sound like instruments. It sounds like creatures. Like, and you you can see this car winding across the mountains and just hear these sounds of these like dying animals. That's what it sounds like to me, anyway. Um, and there's something like sort of deeply sad and ominous about this piece of music. And it's like there's no doubt that, that of the impending doom that's to come. Mm. Uh, mm. And basically, Wendy and Rachel were also commissioned to write loads of tracks for this film, but Kubrick absolutely drove these ladies mad, like totally drove them crazy. Uh, and I think uh, Rachel wrote for Clockwork Orange as well. Um, but what happened was she wrote loads of score, loads of and orchestrated and got orchestras to perform these tracks. And then he axed the scenes. Mm. So they worked really hard on loads of music for the film after seeing scenes and then he acts the scenes, which is not really what you do. Not that I'm here like mansplaining to Kubrick <laughs> what he should be doing. But but you know, you should if you're gonna get an original get original music done, you've got to, you know, be sure of that you're gonna keep those scenes in. Otherwise it's just really mean and you know, for somebody to have to put all that work in. Mm. Um so despite that, the music's incredible in it. Um and Gordon Stainforth, 
I think the music editor, he chose 15 other existing classical tracks, which are also really beautiful. Um, and I think they're flawlessly chosen, remarkably precise and thought out. Uh, apparently Kubrick didn't argue with any of his synchronization, um, which is really rare for him. Like usually I think he was, he could be a bit, uh, excuse my French, but I think he could be a bit cunty um, <laughs> about his artistic decisions and just be quite kind of sort of like, he'll just rip somebody's job, you know, he'll just rip something up or not, not want to use someone's performance or he'll axe actors on the spot and things like that. So I think, you know, he really trusted this guy and, and rightfully so, because he did such a great job. Um, I don't know about you guys, but are there any like scenes that stand out to you musically? Like, I would, uh, I would say even the scene, the scene where she gets attacked, right? And is, I mean, would you call that music, or would you know, is that almost like a sound effect? But you know, that ching, 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 ching. Yeah. I mean, now that is that is just shorthand for scary shit, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, so many people have ripped that off. Just mm. these kind of mad strings and brass noises suddenly hitting you in the face. Um, and I think it, in this film, it's executed so perfectly. Um, one of the moments in the film, which is actually a real standout piece of music, which is unlike the rest of the film, is I don't know if you remember when Jack re-enters the ballroom later on and it's filled with uh, lots of 1930s partygoers. Uh, and at the beginning of the film, he goes in and he's talking to the bar guy and there's no one there, obviously. But then mm. when he starts losing his mind, he enters the ballroom later on and it's filled with, you know, his imaginary party going people. Mm. Uh, and there's a track which is so beautiful and so weird. And it's it's a Foxtrot. It's a 1934 Foxtrot uh, by Al Bowley, Bowley. And it's called Midnight, The Stars and You. And it's so romantic and beautiful and like consequently really haunting in this scene because you're watching Jack Nicholson, who is absolutely fucking insane, waltzing around on his own in this like in his own madness, hmm. madness. But it's like a really romantic, really sort of gorgeous piece of music. And I really like it when people use a piece. I like it when a piece of music is completely at odds with what you're looking at. Um, and I think that's hmm. what make, makes hmm. it really special. And I'm so obsessed with that scene that my brother bought me a T-shirt with the scene on it <laughs> <laughs> for Christmas, um, with all the with with that picture that you see Jack in. Um, mm, anyway, mm. I'm being geeky. It's but, quite, um, quite, quite pertinent for now, really. That's basically lockdown vibes, isn't it? Doing a having a dance around your living room, imagining that you're surrounded by loads of people. I mean, yeah, that's that's, pretty much, that's, that's, that's lockdown mania, yeah. isn't it? Maybe maybe not to that soundtrack though, or ho hopefully not, because that would <laughs> that would just be dark <laughs> you'd be really surprised at, at the music i listen to at home it's it's, it's not it's not very up, uplifting um but yeah i think i could i could bang on about it for ages but i think the, the combo of the classical stuff the original music by these two amazing female composers which is quite rare back then that people would use you know women um for for composing music for films in the 60s and 70s um but yeah i think it's just it's just a really good example of of like how how many people now who make horror films and, and thrillers they they rip off those noises those mad like mm. and like those mm. sudden like noises that I, I just think you know definitely um inspired a lot of people so that's my number one uh so i guess we can move on to my what what are we where are we on the list now number four we're on yours is, now rick yeah jurassic park we look forward to this um although i think uh 
that that A level in uh, film studies, I think, is starting to wilt a little bit in terms of I won't go into anywhere near as much detail as you did there on The Shining. I don't know enough. I mean, I, I guess I'm talking about Jurassic Park simply because it, it is just one of my favourite uh, film soundtracks. And it's funny how we were talking before about how, you know, can a soundtrack make a film? Can it kind of break a film? And I think in in this case, you know, it's 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 the perfect marriage actually of you know a great film in terms of just the the storyline, especially when I first saw it, you know, it had been, what, seven or eight, and dinosaurs have, have come back. I mean, that's every seven or eight-year-old's kind of dream, right? But I think the soundtrack is just so clever in the way that, you know, the film is so grand and magnificent in what it's trying to do, and the soundtrack really kind of fits mm-hmm. that. In fact, it's almost to the point, there are points when I'll listen to that soundtrack, whether it's watching the film or, you know, having a cheeky listen on Spotify, it's like punch the air music, you know, you know, like... Mm-hmm. Um, it makes like, you cry. Jurassic Park soundtrack makes me cry. <laughs> wow, I mean, I probably haven't gone that far. I'm probably <laughs> more like seeing it as like almost like football terrace music, you know, like like oh. sort of uh, like the equivalent of like Kasabian, but in you know in sort yeah. of film film soundtrack music. And um, and yeah, I think I think the other thing I would uh, I'd say about this is that there's even points where they're on the island and you know, or they're deep in kind of the forest or whatever, and really kind of very clever and subtle uses of things like bongos and different tempos and things like that. And it, and it all kind of comes back again at the end of the film. So you kind of have the intro when they first see the dinosaurs, mm. they play the music. But if any of you, either of you have seen that um, Mickey tape version with like a harmonica on YouTube, if not, I'll put the link in the description to the episode. But someone's done like a, a kind of welcome to Jurassic Park. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> you just get this kind <laughs> of shit harmonica. It harmonica version no i, even, I haven't I might, but i want to see it i might risk even just taking it off youtube and putting it in the episode so this would be the point where i would uh, would uh, put it in And yeah, they, they kind of return to this. It's John Williams that did the score, by the way. It, it kind of returns this in the future films as well. So it kind of links, I think, definitely through Jurassic Park 1, 2, and 3. I'm not sure for Jurassic World whether they went quite back to to this soundtrack. But yeah, I just think it's iconic. Um, yeah, I agree. I think there's the bit when they're escaping in the, um, in the uh, helicopter, when they finally get out and they're all, like, covered in blood and... Um, they were looking out over the island and leaving it when you suddenly hear. Na, 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 na. <laughs> oh, I, I think and I agree with you, magic. Laura. It, it's it's like cry music. It's, totes make it's like cry. a typical a typical. Um, I went to Universal Studios actually when I was a, when I was about ten or eleven, and there was a Jurassic Park ride, and it was <gasps> like a log flume. So anytime I hear that now, it just takes. And it was clearly one of the best holidays I've ever had because we did Universal Studios and Disneyland in the same <laughs> week. And um, it was just, I think that back then, it just, fe- that time felt so much more magical for kind of film scores and, mm. and, the, and the classical music that they used on these film scores than it does now, I think. Um, but yeah, that, that song just takes me back to that, that amazing ride that we used to, me and my brother just went on 
like about 10 times in a row right we got off we'll go back on we got off we'll go back on that sounds um, amazing that sounds what like what i want to do right now yeah it's, 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 <laughs> can i ask a very important question to both yeah. of you go on. if you could be a dinosaur what would you be oh <laughs> my god my one of my nicknames i've my <laughs> uh-oh pterodactyl my boyfriend called yeah. me pterodactyl recently because when I'm drunk, I tend to kind of do that and I've got really big hands. Rick knows all about my hands. And apparently I just kind of like stand like that and he's just like looking at me going, arr, arr, and like shaking mm. But yeah, well, pterodactyl's a great one. The world's longest fingers. I think first thing to do after lockdown for you is to go and get them certified as probably the world's longest fingers. There's nothing wrong with that. Artists have long fingers. I've got weird long fingers mm. too, mate. It's the way I've got, to go. I've got, I've got the fattest fingers. That's the difference. Mine are just fat fingers, sausage fingers. But, um, so, well, you, well, if you're hungry, you know. <laughs> yeah, so would you. But, so what uh, would you, you be, Rick? What, 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 what would you okay, be? So I've got quite a complex answer to this. It's a very oh, good question, but I've got a complex answer. So in Jurassic Park and actually in Jurassic World as well, you've got the Velociraptors, mm. which, which are, you know, intelligent uh pack hunting killing machines essentially but in the film they've used a bit of artistic license that's not actually what raptors were like and subsequent studies have basically found that they were no bigger than a turkey they were actually quite small were they, little fellas? they were little fellas then what what oh, they built there they've kind of combined a few different dinosaurs into that so i guess if i had to choose one that actually existed in the form that jurassic park presents it's got to be the t-rex but in reality mm. if i can have a dinosaur that didn't technically exist but was in the film i mean mm. you'd be one of the you'd be one of the raptors because they're so smart they can open a door like they're clever enough to like yeah you've got to be one of them doors right? stuff, well i was going to choose that so now I'm, i can't thanks um so i'm going to choose the one with the flappy head that spits at, what's his name <laughs> at dennis nedry dennis <laughs> nedry but fun fact they're not real either. No, they're not real. Dilophosaurus. Yeah, Dilophosaurus. I want to be one of them. If we can be a fantasy dinosaur, you know what I mean? I'm definitely yeah. going to be the flappy head guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, that, that's half a Jurassic Park, isn't it? Just made up dinosaurs or reimagined yeah. dinosaurs. But the music but is what... great, isn't it? That's yeah. the thing. The music that's is great. Good. good choice, Rick. I'm really glad you... I wasn't expecting you to put something like that on your list. So I'm really mm. glad you, you've come up, come up trumps with something like that. Okay, so I'm, gonna, I'm now going to segue into our next one and say, Sarah, you can go next for number five, which is the beach. And I guess there's some vague link there between, you know, Ilanubar, the island on Jurassic Park, the beach, you know, tropical paradise. So, yeah. Why have you chosen the beach? Uh, it's probably one of my most memorable soundtracks of being a, being a teenager. So it's, it's Danny Boyle's 2000 thriller movie, The Beach, uh, and it's all about a so-called paradise and tropical bliss. Um, and it's got a soundtrack to match it, I think. Well, it, it does. It's a bit kind of bliss, but kind of scuzzy, dancey bliss. <laughs> um, the film stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Tilda Swinton. Um, and it's his, uh, Leo DiCaprio's first film after he did Titanic. And, and DiCaprio was actually planned to play the lead actor in American Psycho in 2000. Did you know this? <gasps> no, but I didn't. But when that. he commanded £20 million for, the beat, uh, for, for American Psycho, and they were like, nope. So, um, so then he agreed to make The Beach instead. And actually, The Beach, I looked at IMDb and it's got a score of 6.7. I used to think it was a great film and I watched it about a year ago and thought, this is terrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> the film's aged really, really badly, but the soundtrack hasn't. Mm. Um, 
you know, the film's famous for its beautiful filming locations. And there was that kind of horrible story about how they they actually man-made the set. And then when they left, it, there was a massive storm and then it kind of ruined all of the coral reef there, which was a bit of an environmental disaster. But we'll, mm. we'll brush past that bit. Um, but I think just going onto the soundtrack, um, I think, again, what I was talking about earlier, kind of it being of the time. So this was made in 2000 and I think you can really tell that there's a lot of 90s dance influence within the soundtrack so mm. like the left field opening track it's like really scuzzy scuzzy 90s dance music um, and if you are familiar with the film and you'll remember the Robert Carlyle scene mm. um, again there's a lot of similarities here between the train spotting soundtrack and and the beach um, mm. which I hadn't really thought about until I was I was really putting some thought into what we were going to what we were going to talk about today um, Moby is on there and I really like the song Porcelain All Saints it's a bit, a bit of a weird one to have on there uh, the Pure Shores song because it's not really um, it's, I don't think it's as really as cool as the other kind of stuff. I or, can't or, listen or, to that song without thinking about the beat. Exactly yeah. the same, yeah. And, yeah, and, that, and that it is really true. works. It, I think even though I know what you mean, it's not it's not necessarily the best song in the world, but I do listen to that and I think I, it make, makes me feel like, yeah. like I did when I watched the film. For yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually quite like the song, but it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like it fits in with the rest of the songs that are on the, the soundtrack, if you, if you know what I mean. Um, my favourite song on the soundtrack, though, is uh, the Sugar Ray uh, Spinning Away, and it's a cover of John Cale from Velvet Underground and Brian Eno, Roxy Music. Mm. And it is just the perfect song. If you kind of watch the scene that the film links to, and um, it, it's, it's the perfect song for that scene. And it's just the perfect song. And I think it's probably one of my most listened to songs on Spotify. And I do think it's a bit underrated. I, I'm sure if you say that song to anyone, they'll say, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, the other, another one I really want to just mention is uh, a song called Yeke Yeke by Mora Kante. If you haven't listened to it, you've got to go listen to it. Um, it's one of my mum's favourite songs. She, she literally loses her shit to this song. <laughs> Um, it's just a bit of a, a weird one. You've got Dario G um, of Sunshine. Can you remember that song "Sunshine" by Dario G? Yeah. Mm. I listened to mm. your. I listened to this earlier because of your choice, right? And I was like really loving it. That yeah. particular track. I was like, yeah. this is like yeah, it's 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 good. And it's. I think what what I love about it is that it's all underrated songs by amazing artists, or just little known songs by all these amazing artists. So you've got like um. A blur, um, a blur, mm. a blur, and William Orbit, um, mm. and it's the the Crouch M Broadway mix of On Your Own. That song just makes me want to run around my flat and go mental. Yeah, <laughs> which I sort of did did earlier. Um, <laughs> Chemical Brothers, Out of Control. Again, you've got um, another kind of of their time musicians, uh, Richard Ashcroft, um, doing the song Lonely Soul with Uncle. Uh, and I don't know, it just, I, I, I find it really hard to find the words to, to explain how this soundtrack makes me feel, but it just makes me feel full of warmth and love. Um, mm. And I just, yeah, I love it. But yeah, have you guys, Rick, Rick, have you seen the film? Again, years ago, and not, I don't remember much of it, to the point that, a bit as Laura was saying earlier, I just think of the All Saints song, except in my head, I changed the words to take me to take me to the beach rather than take me to my beach. That's mm -hmm. all I can think of is I think of that track 
but yeah, I probably saw it at the time when it came out around that time. But yeah, it's not one I've really returned to, probably because it's one of those that would come on the TV. You'd watch the first 10 minutes and like you say, it'd feel quite dated, that kind of of its time. I can't really remember the storyline, but I remember the cinematography being really beautiful. Um, like I remember the atmosphere and the vibe and, and yeah. maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons why the soundtrack works. Like, I can't remember the storyline. I can remember Leo DiCaprio being a babe as per usual, but Absolutely. I don't remember, I remember people being, mur- I don't know, you tricked So yeah, he Somebody basically, gets killed? I don't know. He, got, he got to the, he got to Thailand on this dream holiday, um, meets these travelers who gave him a map. They weren't supposed to give him the map. And it, it turns out to be a map to this, this, this island that only a few people know about. And mm. it's a bit of a dangerous place to be because there's an agreement between these local um, cannabis farmers mm. who said, if any more people come to this island, we will kill you. And, and that's kind of what it's happened. Then Tilda Swinton, the badass, love Tilda Swinton so much. Yes, um, she's she's, she's a, such a bitch, <laughs> but yeah. like, such a good bitch in it. Um, and she sort of like plays him and yeah he's like a cute little American tourist Um, but I think you know that's one of I just Leo DiCaprio can't do wrong in my eyes I think he's one of the most underrated amazing actors of our generation and I'll watch Mm. any film he's in like multiple times I think he's going to keep getting better as well I hope so I think so I think he's going to keep because he's you know as he's getting older he's kind of getting a little bit softer around the edges and less baby facey and he's getting, I think he'll keep getting awesome parts. I've just got, yeah. I've got a feeling in my bones. Oh, mm. good. That's good, because I love him. So how are we going to segue to the next one? So we're going to go to Laura's next choice of uh, With Nail and I. And I don't think there really is a segue from the beach to that, because it's... Um, <laughs> from nothing we can I mean, do from, <laughs> from a tropical to paradise to, to the squalor of, um, so of London. speaking of one tropical paradise to another tropical paradise... Let's go to Camden Town with Withnell and I. No, um, yeah, will that do? Yeah, that's enough of a segue. So why why do you love it? Um, why do I love it? Well, first of all, Withnell and I, for those who don't know it, uh, is the 1987 black British comedy written and directed by Bruce Robinson. Uh, and it's produced by George Harrison uh, from the Beatles. They're a band. Um, and it's, oh, I've heard of them, yeah. yeah they're, they're quite, quite successful. I think they did quite well, yeah. Um, awful, that's such a bad joke. Um, who based it? Basically, um, Bruce Robinson based uh, with Nell and I on his own life in the 60s, uh, living in Camden Town. Um, and it stars the mighty Richard E. Grant as Withnell, Paul McGann as Marwood, or I, as we call him, because you actually hear him being called Marwood in it. Um, and uh, Richard Griffiths as Uncle Monty, Ralph Brown as Danny, and again, loads of other characters that are brilliant. Like everyone, it's a good example of small characters just popping up, having a line and being fucking amazing in that film. Um, and it follows the story of two unemployed actors struggling with their sort of lack of theatrical work and spiralling alcoholism in their rank flat in Camden. Uh, and they're visited only by their drug dealer, Danny. Um, and after basically a discussion about both of them desiring a holiday, Withnail convinces his uncle to let them stay in his extremely rough around the edges cottage in Penrith. Um, And basically all hell breaks loose and pretty much uh, all that hell is created entirely by themselves. Um, Mm. And I've got this theory that I feel like Withnail and Marwood are like clowns. Uh, (laughs) They're basically, it's like a clowning film. They're just constantly 
acting like clowns. And interestingly, the soundtrack, uh, the original pieces of music um, reflect that. They kind of sound like a lot of it sounds like big top music, which I mm, it's, mm. it's quite interesting that, that it was chosen, I think, possibly for that reason. I don't know. Um, but it's one of the most highly overquoted films. People do impressions of them all the time, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that because can I can I do one then? Sure. I demand to have some booze. There we go. How's there that? It is. See, I I, think... I'm a, I'm a frustrated actor. <laughs> in the in my film world that I live in, actors constantly quote Blackadder and With Nell and I, and it does get grating. But I liked your impression. Yours. Oh, good, good. good. Um. <laughs> But the trivia is basically, the, what's interesting is that Bruce Robinson had never made a film before. This, and, and Richard E. Grant and uh, Paul McGann, this was their first film. Like, they'd done a couple of little tiny bits and pieces, but, you know, you'd think that something so brilliant, like, they, knew, they didn't know what the fuck they were doing, like, at all. But the music, arguably, is flawless in that film. Like, absolutely flawless. Um, it's uh it's I, I really do think that basically the soundtrack really does make certain moments in that film that you just remember immediately um the intro which is a uh, king curtis's cover of a whiter shade of pale which is you basically hear that as the camera drifts around the lad's flat floating around the mess and the mayhem and the broken wine bottles and drug paraphernalia and just like disgusting unwashed dishes and it's like so gorgeously at odds with what we're seeing on on screen Mm, um and we see this you know the beautiful paul mcgann uh looking painfully wistful and like completely like in 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 pain while we hear this beautiful romantic music and it's another example of two things being at odds but totally working um and i'll i'll get on to like how basically i I find what's so interesting about with nell and i is there's so much silence in the film like in between tracks like you Mm. there's like Mm. 10 minutes after that where we hear no music at all and it's it's really really like important not to fill too much space in film and i'm really learning that because i'm so into music i'm like can we put music here and put music there but actually it's really nice not to sometimes um but with withnell and i think arguably one of the most memorable moments musically in the film is when paul mcgann is in the car and they're about to drive off to the countryside and the the wrecking ball hits that wall and he flips his sunglasses down with a fag like, like hanging out of his mouth and you just hear all along the watchtower Jimi Hendrix just crashes in mm. and it's arguably like one of the coolest sexiest moments ever like because he just looks like such a dude but it wouldn't work without the track mm. I don't know if you guys mm. are fans of the film at all it was definitely a student staple when I was at uni. I mean, and that was the cliche at the time. It was like a, you, every student house came. It's like when you go to hotels, every hotel room comes with a copy of the Bible. Every <laughs> student house comes with a copy of uh, With Nail and I, and you just end up quoting it kind of endlessly. The, I demand to have some booze was definitely yeah. what we all thought we were the first people in the world to say when we wanted to go to the pub back in 2004, 2005. But yeah, another one that I haven't seen as recently so it's definitely one that I remember from my student days as opposed to some things but yeah probably hearing you talk about it there it's one I'm going to put on my uh, list to watch again and probably uh, pick up things that I'd missed yeah it's, it's, it's really fucking funny Sarah, I've, never, I've never seen it 
I know. <laughs> when I saw it on your list, I was like, it was too late for me to watch it now. No, <laughs> um, so really I'm going to have to go it. away and watch it. I'll, I'll, I'll get absolutely slammed for that, won't I? Because I know it's one of those films that everybody has watched. Mm. But um, a, few, a few films have slipped through my net. So um, I'll, I'll put it on and I'll let you know. Yeah, let me know what you think. It is, it is a classic. I mean, it's, it's really funny and, and really gross. And knowing, like, I mean, Richard E. Grant's performance is incredible like it really is and he's again like I was saying earlier about bravery with Jack Nicholson um Richard E. Grant had never drunk alcohol before because he was I think he was allergic to alcohol so Bruce Robinson made him get drunk uh just mm. so that he could have memory um like muscle memory basically oh emotional memory uh and he and made him rehearse drunk just this one time and God, it's really hard to explain unless, like, honestly, it's like his performance in that is is incredible, and like his drunken like behavior is exactly what you, you we're like when we're drunk, when you're trying <laughs> not to be drunk, <laughs> you're like <laughs> trying to convince everyone you're not drunk. He's like an example of you, me, me at my worst when I'm drunk, basically. But um, music-wise, uh, there's an, an original piece of music that was written for the film. Uh, which appears when Paul McGowan's character is, is walking to try and find the farmer. Um, and it's really, 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 really beautiful. And it makes another appearance at the end of the film as well, uh, when Paul McGowan basically says goodbye to Withnell. And it's a really sad moment. Like, Sarah, you'll have to watch it and let me know what you think. Cause it is really beautiful because it's, it's like the whole film is such, it's so chaotic and they are like clowns and it's really fucking funny. Uh, the music's really rock and roll, but then there's this one piece of music that makes an appearance earlier on, which is really beautiful, that they replay at the end when when they say goodbye to each other. But what they do is they kind of play with that um, piece uh, and make it sound like a cir circus music, mm, but it's mm. the same it's the same notes. Uh, and it's it's really interesting because I, I've, I'm currently using a piece of music throughout a piece like basically where it keeps replaying but it's slightly different depending on what you're seeing but it, it kind of keeps everyone in the vibe um and another really jammy piece of music because they had george harrison as the producer they got to use um while my guitar gently weeps for the for the film which is completely unheard of like you can never use mm. Beatles songs mm. so they were really lucky to use that because they had old George in the mix um but yeah it's it's just, it's just loads of massive tunes and I think it's one of the best soundtracks of any film that I'm obsessed with for sure yeah a great one to bring up and I think one that I'm going to go back and watch again and Sarah maybe you you'll uh you'll watch that and talk about it on a future episode right well I've got lots of time on my hands at the moment so um and I'm watching lots of films so I'll definitely pop that on my list for sure yeah which is the whole purpose of this episode I suppose so actually on that theme that's given me a really good segue into my next choice which is uh Goodfellas uh which is Martin Scorsese's 1990 gangster epic um set kind of in the 50s and kind of follows the lives of a uh, of a, a bunch of gangsters and the reason i say that is because i realized about two or three months ago i had never seen the godfather i'd never seen goodfellas <clears throat> and admission i actually watched the godfather for the first time about two nights ago so i realized i realized that i have kind of big gaps in my kind of film knowledge and it's a bit like when i was a uh, 
music journalist. And I used to kind of worry about that tap on the shoulder of someone saying, do you know much about Bob Dylan? Because the truth was, apart from that video where he does the thing with the words and, you know, a, a, you know the, like a Rolling Stone, his main hits, not really. So I, I always kind of had Goodfellas and The Godfather and stuff like that on this list of stuff that must get to at some point. So, yeah, about two or three months ago, Goodfellas was on TV again. Um, here's the stupid thing. So I thought I'd recorded it to watch it, which I had. But I don't know if you know on like ITV, they'll put like an ad break in the middle. So you actually have to record the two parts. So I didn't realize I'd only recorded half the film. So I put it on and I thought, well, that's a weird intro. I mean, they're kind of straight into it in a bar. And now they're battering this guy. And now there's been no character intro. But maybe this is just what gangster films are like. And then it slowly dawned on me. I just hadn't watched the first half of the film. So I had to then go back and watch it, watch it again to, to see the whole like build to this point where they go and beat this, um, beat this guy up. But yeah, I think like, one this of this has escalated quickly. <clears throat> well, again, I thought even with my film studies A level, I don't understand this. I don't understand this filmmaking technique where you just work on the assumption the audience knows who all the characters are. But hey, maybe that's how Scorsese does it. And um, I think the other thing that really struck me was just the use of music in it. You know, it really mm. puts it in the place and time. There's a lot of like 50s rock and roll, doo wop, stuff like the Cadillacs. And there's a bit of Aretha Franklin from the 60s as they kind of move through the 60s, the Shangri La's. Um, and probably the bits that I like the most in this are kind of ro there's Rolling Stones, Monkey Man, that's used a couple of times. But uh, Eric Clapton, or it was released under Derek and the Dominoes, Layla. But the kind of piano outro of, uh, of Layla. Um, basically like two songs in one isn't it you know you've mm -hmm. got the the kind of dad rock driving down the highway and a you know an open top car kind of guitar riff bit of that song and then the really kind of sad piano um you know kind of piano motif that kind of comes at the end and they use that in a scene not to spoil it for listeners but if you haven't seen it then you're even more a bigger fool than me uh, is the scene where they're kind of discovering all the dead bodies of the various mm. people that have been killed to kind of keep a lid on on what they've been doing, and it just works so well mm. with uh, with kind of the Clapton track uh, over the top. So yeah, I agree. Um, I love that scene for that exact reason. I think the music's so perfect for it. But yeah, it's just one of those. I think it it works as an album without even needing to watch the film. You know, mm. in a and it's just a great compilation of, of 50s and 60s rock and roll and soul and doo-wop and um, almost like a great introduction to music of that era. If someone said to me, I've never really listened to much kind of Motown or, or rock and roll or you know, Muddy Waters, stuff like that, you'd say, well, just go and listen to the Goodfellas soundtrack because that'll give you all, all that you kind of... Uh, all that you kind of need to know. That's what I associate with uh, New York gangsters now, that kind of music. Mm. Whenever I hear it, I'm like, ah, oh, that, or Catch Me If You Can, another Leonardo DiCaprio film, because there's a lot of that in that as well, which is another good one, actually. I didn't think about that one when we put putting this list together. That's a really underrated movie. I love it. Oh, I've watched that about 10 times. I Have absolutely you? love it, yeah. And the soundtrack as well is just fantastic. It's got a lot of that kind of same, similar Goodfellas style um, kind of rap pack and, and things like that on it, which is brilliant. Mm. I love mm. it. So I guess we're on the home straight now. We've got one left each to uh, to talk about. So Laura, do you want to kick off with yours? And one, I'm going to admit I haven't seen, right? But I have cheated and watched a YouTube explainer okay. on uh, on what the film's actually all about. So that's Lost Highway. A, I'm really uh, a David sorry. Lynch film. You see, by doing this with me, you you kind of yeah. There's there's always going to be weirdness, unfortunately. I don't know if you're a are you a David are you David Lynch fans? Uh, of any of his stuff, like Twin Peaks or Mulvane Drive or the classics? 
I'll admit I also haven't seen this film. Um, I know who David Lynch is, um, mm. but I don't. I, I wouldn't say I'm a, a fan of his films purely because I just haven't really seen them. But, but when you said sorry, this is actually great because... I don't know about you, Rick, but I feel like I'm learning a lot here and I'm actually yeah. going to go away and watch some of this, watch these films that I've never even thought to have watched before. So I'm really happy about this. As long I'm as learning. I'm not bo boring you census. And you're no, absolutely not. It's great. It's great. To I hear. had about another 10 bullet points on with Mel and I that I totally sketched <laughs> over. So, mm. um, but yeah, I, I mean, David Lynch is basically my hero. I'm sure he's really my dad. Like I'm convinced that he's, he's like, I love him so much. It's insane. Like he's, um, He's my biggest influence as a director. Uh, I never will forget the first time I ever saw um, one of his films. Uh, I just was like, oh my God, this is, you know, he has this incredible dark magic and humor in his writing and his filmmaking and in, in everything about what he's just got this knack of, of darkness and sexiness that totally does it for me and turns me on. Um, and Lost Highway isn't necessarily my favourite film of his, but the soundtrack I thought was interesting because it's quite different to a lot of his other stuff. Basically, Lost Highway uh, is like it's a neo-noir film. Um, it was made in 1997, uh, which is seven years after Twin Peaks was made, which was obviously his his big hit. A Razor Head was a huge like cult phenomena, but, but mm. Twin Peaks was a was a com weirdly commercial success. Um, but Lost Highway, yeah, it's it to me it's fucking cool, and I'll I'll explain why. Um, it, it's the basically the first of three films he shot that were based in LA. Um, after he made so so after this he made Mulholland Drive, which was the one that lots of people like. That's their favorite one. It's super sexy and really beautiful, but it's it's not necessarily one of my favorites. And Inland Empire, which has got the brilliant Laura Dern in it, and she performs her tips off in it. It's incredible. Um, it was co-written by Barry Gifford, who also wrote the book Wild at Heart. I don't know if you've seen Wild at Heart, um, but that's one of his his sort of big hit films. Um, and Lynch turned that into a brilliant film. So this was actually based on a book. It stars Patricia Arquette, Bill Pullman, Baltasar Getty and Robert Blake. And Bill P Pullman, basically, he plays this mad, well, he's, he's not mad, but his music's mad, like saxophonist. And he starts receiving mysterious VHS tapes through on his doorstep and they're of him and his wife in their house. And that's 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 mm. how we start off. And it's in L.A. It's got this weird L.A. vibe to it. I don't know if you if you've been there, but it captures that weird kind of slightly distorted Hollywood vibe. Um, and critics basically dismissed it as this incoherent uh, mess. But anybody that likes David Lynch is totally into that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a bit like like nonsense like oh what are you expecting from this dude um but yeah i mean like you wouldn't expect a forrest gump storyline with with him you know uh and it's basically the story of a schizophrenic man and who loses contact with reality and i won't give the game away but he commits he may or may not have committed a crime mm. uh but part of the storyline is about his his unconscious uh and it's an unconscious projection of his life. So David Lynch plays with that a lot in his films, which really interests me when somebody, there's a one storyline going on, but there's also a storyline, which is the dreamlike reality of, of the, the plot. Mm, mm. <laughs> Sorry, I'm mental. Um, so No, ha having, having seen this YouTube clip that explains what it all means, I know exactly what you're talking about, despite the fact I've only seen about two yeah. minutes of this film. That's mm. how I cheat at these things. 
but I, I think anybody that's interested in film that isn't obvious, David Lynch is your guy, because you know, you're watching it and as long as you let go of the tra traditional filmmaking style and you mm -hmm. allow it to be like a dream, it's like watching something that you've dreamt. It's, it's mad, like really fucking cool. Like if you allow mm -hmm. that, like, mm -hmm. you know, it's like you watched, it's like you had a dream. To me, that's how I feel anyway, or a nightmare, you know. Um, but the soundtrack is actually produced by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. And it features some really like haunting Twin Peaks-esque original score by Angelo Badalamenti, who is David Lynch's long-standing collaborator. But it also features tunes from Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, David Bowie, Marilyn Manson and Ramstein. So, uh, Ramstein, sorry. But it's it's like fucking violent. Like the soundtrack is so heavy and so aggressive. Um, and the reason I love that is because the film is so dreamy and sexy and sensual uh, and like delicious, um, which David Lynch does really well. But the soundtrack is like disgusting <laughs> and, and, and really heavy and really, really heavy. And I can't say that I, I listen to Marilyn Manson every day, but I really love it in this film. Mm. Well, uh, we're not supposed to now, are we? He's been cancelled. Oh, yeah, this he's been week. totally cancelled. Um, but there's some really standout performances and I won't get into that because it's not music related, but Patricia Arquette's character, because she's like an absolute babe. And I mean, she's, she was such a babe. She is a babe still, but she she's like the ultimate wet dream. You know, she's an absolute sex pot in it. But what's really interesting about the music is that David Lynch uh, chooses certain music to confuse you into what so she's playing a victim in some parts of the film, but she's also playing a complete badass. And depending on which scene she's in, he uses music. She's not doing anything different. She's just playing the same character. She speaks in this baby voice the whole time, but the music makes you either feel for her or think, what a slag, <laughs> you know? And it's the music that does that, or, mm. you know, it's, it's not her. And that's how influential music can be in film. And that's really, really interesting to me. But the standout tracks for me are the intro track is, is I'm Deranged, which is a David Bowie song. Uh, and it opens the film and basically you're following, the camera's following the highway. It's going down the highway and the, the, the credits are all hitting you in the face and it's kind of comic book style. And he, David Bowie's voice, obviously the first thing you hear in a film, you hear his voice, you're going to be sold. But it's over these kind of really scatty kind of industrial beats. Uh, and it's it's similar to train spotting. It's a similar kind of vibe where the intro music. You, you, there's no way you're gonna you're gonna turn it off because <laughs> it's so mm, exciting. Mm. Um, and yeah, there's just like some really awesome tunes in it. There's there's the most sort of like I don't know if you remember Rick from watching the uh, cheat cheat sheet on YouTube. But did you see there's like a creepy dude? Like yeah, I did. It, it looks a bit like Uncle Fester in, um, <laughs> in the Adams family. Yeah, so that's one of the most famous sort of scenes in the film that people kind of write home about, which is this moment where this dude, I don't think I'm spoiling the storyline by saying this, like basically Bill Pullman is in this really creepy, well, it's not creepy, it's actually just a, an LA Hollywood cheesy party. And all you can hear is this kind of almost like a Casio keyboard style uh like you know when you press a demo button on a casio keyboard <laughs> yeah like it's like a really cheesy kind of cocktail bar elevator music and it totally sort of lulls you into this 
sort of complete ease like you think oh this is going to be a sexy fun hollywood scene and then all you see is that fucking dude's face across mm. the across the way looking at bill pullman that scary face and it's the scariest face i think i've ever seen and he just walks over and that's when the music cuts and it goes completely silent and that's a really good example of how silence can completely fuck you up <laughs> mm. <laughs> and i won't tell you what happens because it's it's if anyone wants to watch the film if i'm not boring everyone senseless like that scene is one of the best scenes in any film i think it's it's so weird and so disturbing and and genius another one on the list um <laughs> so we're on to our last two now sarah i'm gonna put yours last because i think yours is a total curveball right so i know i know we were doing this in a very neat one goes after the other here, but I'm going to jump in and do my final choice, and then you can kind of uh, round us off with your curveball, uh, so listeners can be wondering what that is now. Uh, so my last choice is Submarine, um, probably, again, not one that maybe is as broadly known as some of the other films on our list. This was Richard Ayoade of the IT crowd and kind of questionable HSBC adverts fame. I say that because I'm really disappointed that Richard Ayoade is, is advertising um, HSBC. But I guess I can let him off because this is a this is a great film. This is this probably um, redeems him to some uh, some degree. It's his directorial debut. It's a kind of coming of age drama starring Craig Roberts and Yasmin Page. It was released just over ten years ago, 2010. And probably the thing that me that maybe I that turned me onto this film is that Alex Turner with uh, James Ford, who also, I think he was in Simeon Mobile Disco, from my mm -hmm. memory. Um, and he also has kind of worked on a lot of Arctic Monkey stuff. He did like an original soundtrack. It's only about 20 minutes long, sort of five, six songs long, but they're kind of weaved in, um, sort of weaved in the storyline. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's not groundbreaking in terms of the, the plot. You know, boy meets girl, girl fucks boy over, boy kind of goes away and sort of writes clever lines in his own head, sort of thing, sat to the soundtrack of... Alex Turner and uh, and James Ford stuff, but yeah, it's it's for me, and this might be a bit controversial. I almost think this is the best thing Alex Turner's ever worked on, even above and beyond any Arctic Monkey stuff, because it's really mature sort of songwriting. Um, Stuck on the puzzle, I think is probably the best song he's he's ever done in in any of the bands he's been in. You can see why it's not Arctic Monkeys that do it, because it's a slightly different style of music. Like I say, a little bit more, I guess, contemplative, a little bit more mature in the sound. Um, almost a little bit 60s in a way, and some of the songs are constructed almost. Um, and Pile Driver Waltz, which is on this album, then made it to an Arctic Monkeys album, but they kind of completely um, reworked it. But yeah, it's um, it's not a particularly well-known sort of British film. It's one of those that might be on Channel 4 once every couple of years. Um, it's quite it's quite well-respected in the film world. People think it's it's the bee's knees. Yeah, and it's... I really it's, very, it's a very cute film. It's one of those mm. kind of, yeah, very, very cute, I think. I think it's also interesting that Craig Roberts, who plays the main character, the main sort of male lead, forget, I actually forget the name of the character, but um, he looks a bit like Alex Turner from that time. I don't know if that was sort of deliberate on Richard Ayoade's part, but you can almost, that's why I think the music is such a good fit, because they mm. picked an actor who sort of in some way resembles Alex Turner. God, that's really interesting. That's so true. That might have been a subconscious thing, like mm. when you were casting. Mm. I wonder if he kind of, didn't realize you know because actually he does look like him doesn't he that's really true i mean probably a slightly different i think i don't i don't imagine alex turner used to brood in his bedroom like uh like craig roberts character does and um Maybe. and i guess richard Iowadia, i imagine the reason he ended up working with alex on this is he did work on some arctic monkeys videos 
beforehand as well. So there was that kind of, I guess, that sort of common collaboration. I find Richard Ayawadi as an individual quite, and he's quite an interesting one, isn't he? I don't know if he's anyone you've ever met before, uh, Laura, or been around, but I don't know. He's got a fairly sort of unique, he's got a fairly unique performance style, you know, even mm. in the IT crowd, which is a very, it's a very mainstream Channel 4 comedy, right? But, mm. you know, who would you, I don't even, he, even know he would compare Richard Ayoade to in terms of his performance style, because there isn't anyone I can think of. No, he's like dry beyond dry. You know, um, I have met him. He's a dude. He's really lovely. I think he he's not somebody who likes to, um, he doesn't, he he's doesn't like to put on a front. So what you see is totally what you get with him and he's just got that brilliant dry British sense of humor that's really bizarre and um definitely my kind of my kind of vibe like I think he's subtle beyond subtle with his acting as well it's just very kind of deadpan and and yeah I really I really like his his work for sure and I love the film as well I think it's brilliant yeah so another one for listeners to check out if you haven't already seen and that brings us up to uh number 10 and I said Sarah this is a bit of a, a curveball and one that I think you were desperate to put in the last film podcast episode we did and I managed to veto it but I'm not going to veto it here so what's the story come on what is it and what's the story I'm desperate to talk about it Rick uh it's the Beauty and the Beast soundtrack <laughs> I've actually gone throughout my whole life being quite embarrassed about this <laughs> but I'm, I'm owning it now um it came out in 1991 so I was about five Five, four or five when it came out um, and it would have been the first Disney video I think that my parents bought me um, but I, I, I must have I think I even wore the video out because I just watched it so many times and I think it was where um, kind of going back and obviously my parents bought me loads more Disney videos and blah 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 blah, blah. but I think the reason I liked this one is because I think the character, the main character, Belle, had something about her as a Disney character that the other ones didn't, and she probably had a bit more substance. And actually, kind of digging, digging into this a bit, um, it's it's it says that Belle's love of reading. I don't know if either of you seen it, but she's um, really into her books. Um, and the the first scene is when she kind of goes down. Um, the, the the first scene has the best song of the film for me. It's it's mm. just called Bell, and I just love to sing it, and it just gives me goosebumps. And it's her going down like from her dad's house where she mm. lives into this little cute little tiny French village, and meeting mm. all the people on the way, and like singing to them, and they're talking about baking and things like that. And she goes to the library, and he gives her a book, and she sits down by the the fountain, and she's kind of reading this book, and apparently it's meant to be a sign of great intelligence um and something that had never been kind of portrayed in a disney princess character before mm. um and it's a, it's a subtle hint to the, the overall movie's message which is don't judge a book by its cover so there's kind of that part of it and then also obviously the beast who is a prince who gets turned into a beast because he's a horrible nasty person mm. um and then they fall in love at the end because she's not judging the book by its cover and she's fallen in love with him for being him and blah 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 um but apparently this, this film wasn't originally going to be a musical, but after the success of Little Mermaid, they, de they decided to rewrite it. And I'm so glad they did. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure everyone, everyone else is glad they did as well. Um, and it, it, it won so many awards, this soundtrack. Um, so it, it, you know, it won the Golden Globe Award for Best Original Score, the Academy Award for Best Original Score, the Grammy Award for Best Instrumental Composition Written for a Motion Picture. Um, and its, it's title track won the Golden Globe Award. Mm. 
the Academy Award, the Grammy Award. You know, was just was that so Taylor's oldest time? Yes, be, yeah, Beauty and the Beast. Bloody tune, mate. I'm all, all, all <laughs> right. Actually, yeah, we, we become like apologetic about things that are really commercial and or, or something, you know, like we were saying about ABBA earlier. It's like almost like you have to apologise because everyone loves something, but there's a reason for that. It's, yeah. you know, there's nothing that's undeniable when it, when songs speak to loads of people especially children like you know it's it's amazing um that it connects with so many people so well, I went to see it on ice as well I remember getting taken to, to see it on ice with uh, my little cousin and um at the end I, I can't remember how old I was but I was young enough to be able to get to, younger to my granddad to be able to buy me a chip mug and he didn't and he bought my little cousin one and I was <gasps> kind of like crying on the way back to the car and he was like what was wrong with you? I was like, and you've never oh, forgotten that. And you've no, never no. Forgiven. He went back to get me one because oh, <laughs> right. he didn't think I wanted one because I don't know. I was I wasn't even that old, but um, yeah, he went back, bless him, to get me one. Or I think oh. my mum did, or my grandma did, or something. Um, and I, it chip, little my little chip cup, like was the the best thing I've ever had. But yeah, that the the opening song, Bell, is uh, one of my favourite songs of all time, and it's one of my favourite songs of all time to sing as well. And I think that's what got me into singing and musicals. And I used to go to a lot of musical theatre when I first moved to London, and I credit it all to this film and this mm. soundtrack in particular. It's brilliant. I'm, I'm with you all the way. Ooh, massive, massive bangers, loads of them. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, singing teapots, come on. Mm. <laughs> And clocks and candles, and it's just magical. Exactly. I mean, look, I've I've got three daughters under uh, how old, what are they under now? Under eleven. So of course, there's been plenty of Beauty and the Beast in uh, in my house mm. over the last sort of decade. Well, but um, about the uh, the remake, we haven't talked about that. So the, I can't the, watch it. I can't. Have you have you watched it? I can't. I I, I watched it. it. I've watched it twice now because it was on over Christmas. So I I just it was on and I was doing nothing. So I watched it again. Um. It, it's not as bad. I didn't hate it as much as I thought I'd hate it. Um, and I was quite intrigued to see Emma Watson, who could actually sing quite well. But, mm. it's, it, yeah, I mean, it's all about the original for me. Mm. And, I, I, and I think the nice thing about this when we were planning this episode out and why I felt a little bit bad about not letting you put it in the last episode that we did around music was, you know, where you said this is what got you into singing. It's not something we often talk about on the show, but, and, you know, Laura, you won't know this yet, but. Sarah can actually sing. I mean, like, I, really hang sing. Hang on a second. I'm Sarah's biggest fan, mate. <laughs> she does know. Like, this is what I'm Instagram videos. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan. I think you've got an awesome voice. Thank sure. you. Thank you. Yeah, Rick, I've, put, I've been putting videos up on Instagram, um, starting to blush. It's a big thing for me. Like, I've wanted to kind of put myself out there for, like, 20 years. But I'm, like, I've got crippling shyness when it comes to things like that. So it's quite a big thing for me to do. But um, I'm doing it. You're good. You're really good. Keep Thank going. You. Thank you. Yeah, um, next, next step is trying to write my own stuff, but we'll get to that. You need to start but... doing some dancing videos, Rick, and putting them up on Instagram. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I, I can also sing just in a very different sort of way. But yeah, Sarah won't forgive me for saying this. Well, won't thank me for, for saying <laughs> this. But I, I know she can sing from what we work. We obviously work together. And about two years ago we were doing some sort of planning meeting off-site and we had some drinks afterwards and it was me Sarah and a few colleagues <laughs> and she, she was talking she was got a bit bold and was saying I can sing but I don't want to sing in front of you so what we said was well we'll all turn around and then sing so you had this weird situation Aww, where she was singing to us but we had her backs to her and that was the only way that she would in a really busy bar by the way <laughs> really busy bar. 
That sounds like a really weird standoff. It like, was really odd. Strange. Yeah, that they've like got a musical that. actually. With you <laughs> guys like... all the <laughs> then the three of us all turned around at once <laughs> and started clicking. It's the weirdest thing I've ever heard, but I'm very happy for you. It was very strange. Yeah, thanks, Rick. <laughs> no, I love it. That's probably a good I like weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's the thing I do. Like, if anyone ever wants me to sing to them, like, I make them turn around. That's how shy I am. <laughs> yeah, that's been a, a very long episode, but a very good one. And I've learned loads of stuff, um, as I'm sure we all have, about each other. <laughs> and also films and music and soundtracks, which is great. Um, I think we want people to get in touch with us. So we've missed, we may have missed ones off that you think are amazing. Um, you can get in touch with us on Instagram and Twitter at DemotapesPod. Or you can email us at DemotapesPod at gmail.com. Laura, do you want to let us know what your social media contact details are again, just in case people miss them? Um, for the film, uh, Giddy Stratospheres film on Instagram, film Giddy on Twitter, uh, and I am Laura Jean Marsh on Instagram and Twitter. That's And then we've got a website as well, which is the film's name, and that's how you find us and catch up with all our shenanigans. And we'll be keeping a BDI on that. And I think, you know, what we want to say, Laura, you know, a huge thank you for coming on the show uh, again. You know, a bit like on Soccer AM, if you come on three times, you get a hat-trick football, right? So you're, oh, yes. you're, two, you're two-thirds of the way there. Um, and, yeah, obviously, once Giddy Stratospheres is uh, ready to go and we've seen it, we'd love to get you back on to, to talk about it because you're doing a very good job of keeping elements under wraps. You're just about to tell us something and then you... You kind yeah. of pull the plug, which is good. It's keep, going to keep it fresh for us. But yeah, thanks very much for coming on. Absolute pleasure, guys. You're legends. Thanks Thank for having you. me. Thank you. See you soon.